associated podcast making venture capital more accessible. I'm Lois and today I'm co-hosting with the fabulous Francesca. How are you doing today? I'm very well, thank you. I celebrated my birthday over the weekend. So that was... Oh, of course very- you did. Happy birthday. Thank you. Thank you. Um, <laughs> uh, my second lockdown birthday. But, you know, I had a really lovely time, actually, so I cannot complain. How was your weekend? Mine was fine. Thank you very much. Did you do anything special like a lockdown celebration? Yeah, I did. So uh, I went up to the countryside to see my family and my housemate came with me. So we were all in a nice bubble together. We did lots of dog walks and ate a lot. And I got some lovely flowers. I was very spoiled. I had three separate bunches of flowers. So um, I'm a very happy bunny. <laughs> oh, well, amazing. Hopefully we'll carry that happiness through the whole episode. Yeah. <laughs> cool. And our guest today, we are very excited to introduce him, is Todd Grover, who's an investor at World Innovation Lab. Hello, Todd. Thanks for joining us. Hey, thank you. Uh, thank you very much for having me. Uh, not at all. We're so excited. Todd, when was the last time you were given flowers? Ooh, starting with the very tough questions right <laughs> off the bat. We have uh, the hard I, questions I associated. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know that I've ever had the privilege. Um, and what, what, it's, what your questions make me realize is I'm starting to think when is the last time I gave my wife flowers, which is, is uh, I think the answer to that is even worse because I don't, I don't know if I have a date on the top of my head. <laughs> um, so I'm going to get on that and change that, hopefully in short order before she listens to this for sure. <laughs> well, that's really nice. And also you have a little son, is that right? So perhaps you have to have the flowers on a high shelf. So <laughs> Yes, exactly. That's my excuse. I've been so, I've been so focused on, on the child raising. Um, but no, I did. So my wife and I had our first son, in November of 2019, which I've, I've come to realize was a pretty opportune time to, to have a child given, given the circumstances of last year. So, you know, if there was any silver lining the 2020 for me, it was getting the opportunity to spend a, a ton of time with him and helping him kind of navigate his way through the world over the course of the first year and a half or so. Yeah, that's amazing, isn't it? Have you been working from home the whole time? Yes, yes. So we went into work from home mode pretty quickly. So we'll touch on this a little bit more, but because we're actually a dual headquartered organization, I sit in the US in Silicon Valley, but we have headquarters in Tokyo as well in Japan. We sort of saw what was happening relatively early. And so we're able to move into kind of a work from home setting kind of late February, early March of 2020. And I've been operating in this mode ever since. Mm. And at the risk of veering into the typical conversation of <laughs> of the day, I guess it's kind of interesting that you're dual headquartered in Tokyo as well. Does that mean that you have a sort of remote working strategy that spans the whole organization or do the different offices take different approaches? Yeah, it's a good, it's a good question. I think to a large extent, we have different approaches for the different offices, but those approaches are very much evolving sort of in real time as we kind of figure this out, not only the initial shock of going remote because you can't leave the house to today, which is trying to navigate and figure out like, what is a hybrid model? I think people have become accustomed to having the flexibility to work from home, but also understanding that there are some benefits to going back in the office in terms of collaboration and 
having those conversations with people that are a bit more serendipitous that, that you, you sort of miss in a, in a fully remote setting. So I think we're still trying to, to figure out the best way to navigate that going forward. And to a large extent, we kind of are feeling our way. It's incredibly complex. I'm sure it's similar in the UK and we're all just sort of trying to do the best that we can. I don't think that we'll ever go fully back into the office. I don't know if that's similar to how your organizations are, but I think venture capital in particular is an industry where you, you really don't lose much by going to a remote setting. If anything, it sort of enhances productivity because you're able to squeeze in more meetings and you're able to talk to more interesting companies and super cool founders. So, you know, for us, I don't necessarily know if we've lost too much. And I think we wouldn't want to sacrifice some of that efficiency just for um, a little bit more collaboration in the office. So that's something we're still actively thinking through. Long-winded answer to a simple question, but it's it's top of mind. So. <laughs> Yeah, of course. And I'd love to dig in a bit more to the cultural differences between the two offices. But maybe before we get too far in, we should take a step back because, you know, it'd be great to hear a little bit from you about how you define the fund and what your kind of day to day role is at the moment. Yeah, absolutely. So um, the World Innovation Lab or WIL, W-I-L for short, is a, is a pretty unique firm, I think, in the ecosystem. So first and foremost, the main thing to touch on right up front is, you know, we are a venture firm. We do primarily uh, make direct investments into companies at the growth stage, which we define as sort of Series B onwards. In terms of sector focus, we have a very broad focus. So it's everything from software at all layers of the stack, be it infrastructure application to fintech, insure tech e-commerce, uh, marketplaces, even emerging tech as well. So we've looked at companies in, in space. We've looked at companies doing quantum computing, some exciting things around digital health. And I think the reaction to that is like, well, it doesn't sound like you have much of a focus, but there is a rationale to it to why we're as broad as we are. And I'll get to that in a second, but maybe just to start with the, the founding of the firm. So we started in 2014 by our, our current CEO, Gen Nisiyama, who had come over from Japan to the U.S. and he went to business school at Stanford. And as a, a function of going through that experience, he realized and saw like some tremendously exciting things that were happening in Silicon Valley within the technology ecosystem. And because he had the unique perspective coming from Japan, he, he kind of put two and two together and realized, hey, this ethos that is incredibly powerful and exciting and innovative and encourages people to take risks and it's okay to fail is something that I think is really important to export and proselytize to some extent back in Japan, which is an economy that has had some challenges around growth. So we sort of founded Will with that as sort of the, the guiding star, the, the real mission of the organization. And when you think about how that relates to what I think of as our main competitive advantage as a firm. So to, to understand our competitive differentiation, the foundation is you have to understand where our capital comes from. And so that LP base is a host of 29 or 30 different entities, one of which is the Japanese government, who's investing very heavily in technological innovation as a means of driving productivity improvement in the country. But then the rest of the LP base, so 28 or 29 organizations, and large multinational corporations that span a whole host of different industries. So it's everything from Sony and consumer to Nissan and Suzuki and automotive to Mori building and real estate to Tokyo Marine and insurance to Mizuho and financial services and kind of on and on and on and on and on. And I think what's what's really cool about our fund is our relationship with our LPs is very much ongoing and collaborative and, and symbiotic in, in nature. 
which is to say, I think, you know, the standard venture firm who's getting their money from the normal LP sources, kind of quote unquote, I think the, the sources are more differentiated and diverse than they've ever been before, which is a good thing for the ecosystem. But, but usually it's sort of the endowments or the sovereign wealth funds or the pension funds. And, you know, that interaction of that model is, hey, once a quarter you check in and you share, here's how our portfolio is doing. Here's the new investments we've made. Okay, thank you. We'll see you again in a quarter. And you, as a money manager of one of those big institutional pools of money, have thousands of different fund managers that you need to go meet. And that's kind of the extent of the interaction. I think for us, it's monthly discussions that are, you know, very much focused around, hey, what are the trends that we're seeing? What are the companies that we're seeing that are interesting, either as potential uh, vendors, like here's an interesting solution that could help you as a customer or as potential partnerships. And then we, in, in the same way that we bring those types of opportunities to them, get a lot back from them in terms of guidance, in terms of market validation of some of the products or services that we're diligencing. Um, so it's, again, it's very symbiotic. It, it, it's, it's pretty unique in terms of the alignment of all the incentives, I think. Um, and that positions us very, very well to be a, a very effective bridge to Japan um, for early stage technology companies. And, you know, early stage technology companies, I think there is a question of, you know, why Japan? Because it's not, especially being based here in the U.S., most of the companies that we talk with who are a little bit on the earlier side, you know, you're so focused on getting the U.S. right, rightfully so, because the U.S. is such a critically important market. And if you start to think about international expansion, it starts in, you know, the Australias of the world, the U.K.s of the world, where you don't have to localize the product as much and it's a little bit more of a straightforward market entry strategy. Japan is one where you have to be very intentional, but it's also very important. It's, it's a huge market. It's the third largest country in, in terms of GDP in the world. There's 120 million plus folks there. Internet penetration is incredibly high. Smartphone penetration is incredibly high. On the consumer side, they are very willing to be early adopters of technologies because it's imperative to their growth and, and keeping Japan where it is as one of the, the preeminent economies of the world. You know, it's kind of this uniquely attractive market for, for early stage technology companies. Mm, yes. And, and you mentioned there about the opportunities that your LPs can offer in terms of knowledge sharing, but also potentially commercial partnerships with the startups that you invest in, would you be able to give an example of a portfolio company that has built a relationship with one of your LPs? Yeah. So I'd start by just kind of laying out a little bit of the framework that we use in terms of how we work with companies on the more tactical, okay, that's great. I get the messaging, I get the positioning, but like, what are you actually going to do for my company? And I think there's, there's four or five different levers that we have, that we've used with existing portfolio companies. The first of which, which is probably the easiest for us, given the LP base, is the customer introduction. So a number of, especially on the enterprise software side, so the developer tool-oriented companies in our portfolio, like Auth0, like Algolia, these are companies that sell sort of as a service. So their primary product is an API. APIs, fortunately, and as you would sort of expect, don't need a ton of localization. When they're going into a new market, a developer sort of reads code. There's some nuances and some differences, but it's it's largely similar to, to selling it in, in a, a, a different market. So for that one, that was 
an instance where we were able to introduce them to a number of customers. We actually took some of the leaders from those organizations to various large organizations in Japan, and that translated into multiple customer opportunities for those companies, as, as well as a, a few kind of one enclosed deals and now some very, very happy customers. So that's an example on the customer front. The, the second thing that we do, which is just as critical, I think is around the hiring front. So when you're talking about going to Japan, you need to do so with a very kind of localized approach. There is still an expectation. I think this is changing. I think Japan is becoming more globalized as a nation and is starting to kind of look outward and understanding the value that things like immigration can provide. But I think the reality is that having folks on the ground who understand the ecosystem, because it is also a very channel-driven ecosystem, i.e. you need to work through partners, you need to know the players, you know, has a lot of value. And in order to do that effectively, you need to have somebody on the ground and you need to have a team built out there. And so we can help kind of make that first country manager hire, which is super, super important because as anyone knows, who's ever hired someone that first hires generally the person that hires all the rest of the team. And so you want to get that one right, because if you get that one right, by definition, the foundation is going to be shaky and it's not going to work. So we've helped companies make that first hire. Auth0 would be an example of a company where that, that approach worked very, very well. I think the third piece that we do a good job of is helping amplify the marketing message. So we have strong relationships with the Nikkei, which is effectively kind of like a Wall Street Journal of, of Japan, huge distribution, huge kind of base of readers. And uh, thinking about another one of our portfolio companies, Asana, we were able to arrange to get their CEO featured at one of Nikkei's big conferences with thousands and thousands of customers in the audience, generated a ton of good publicity, good um, headlines, good articles as a result of that. Um, and so that's another thing that we do. And yeah, I think that's kind of a good summary of it. There's some other stuff around partnerships as well, and can help you think through structuring if you want to do a subsidiary or a JV or, or what that looks like, and then who are the most relevant partners in designing the channel strategy. But I think that hopefully gives a, a good overview and a general sense for, for how we help. Mm. And from your perspective, what are some of the key things that any founders who might have been considering or might be considering moving into Japan, what, what are the kind of things that they need to think of? Because I'm conscious that you mentioned Japan can be a fairly niche market where it might require more specific localization than others. Are there mm -hmm. any other things that maybe wouldn't be particularly obvious that are really important? I think, you know, the biggest thing that we have probably taken as a learning uh, after having the opportunity to work with, you know, 20 plus portfolio companies is that you need to be intentional committed and ready to really invest in going into the market, which is to say, it's it's not something that I would recommend for a founder as like, hey, I've stood up in the US, I feel like the business is working. Let's immediately go to Japan without any sort of market pull or validation in the market. Because while, and I know I just kind of spoke a little bit about the things that we can do to help companies stand up there, really, I think what we're doing at the end of the day is, is amplification of a company's existing efforts there. And, and it's really the company that is going to dictate whether or not it's going to be successful ultimately in the market. And so I think it's just having that understanding that, look, if it's the right time, if I'm starting to see some pull and, and if it's a big opportunity, then I should go after it. But understanding that there's a trade-off associated with that, particularly at the earlier stage 
of if you're going to do it, you have to invest against it. You have to commit resources to it. And that's inevitably going to take resources, be it capital or headcount or even just time away from other things that you could be doing. So I think the main thing that, that we always try to, to recommend when we're, we're discussing um, the Japan opportunity, particularly with companies at the earlier stages of where we, we engage, is thinking through the trade-offs and thinking through kind of that almost the, the capital allocation decision of going after it because you, you do have to be really intentional about it to, in order to do it correctly. Yeah, that makes sense. So I guess I guess the point is to really have validation for the pull before you start to think about those more specific things that you would then need to do to actually make the move into that market. Right. So interesting. And I think what I would like to understand more about is how you identify these companies that you're planning on investing in? Because I mean, what you've just described, you're looking for companies that have had a little bit of traction in Japan and and maybe have done pretty well in the States. How do you go about finding these companies that that fit this criteria? Yeah, there's um, there's a number of of different ways that we go about sourcing. You know, in addition to, and particularly on the US side, you know, the standard ways that I think most venture firms are are looking for for signal of hey where are some interesting companies that we can kind of go after and go after aggressively which is show me fundraising history show me headcount trajectory on LinkedIn show me who's on the cap table because we have networks within venture that we can speak to about who's invested in what interesting companies and things like that you know the the one kind of additional unique edge that we have is those ongoing relationships with our LPs and those ongoing discussions. And the one thing I haven't touched on, that's an additional service that we offer to our LPs is called the expat program is is how we've sort of branded it. And through it, we've actually had a number of LPs send over employees to kind of co-locate with us here in Silicon Valley in our office. Back in the days when we used to have offices, it feels like forever ago. Uh, And in, in those instances, they're actually kind of working hand in hand with us. So when when I used to go in, I would have someone from Suzuki on my right, someone from Mizuho across from me and Tokyo Marine behind me. And they're often sent over those individuals with a mandate to go meet with earlier stage companies, see what's going on in the ecosystem, find things that could be interesting from a commercial point of view, either as a potential new product that they could adopt or as a partnership. And then we're having those conversations. So if they see something and they see see it as being interesting or compelling from the perspective of either a customer or a partner. And even if that company hasn't done anything in Japan, hasn't spent any time thinking about that, then all of a sudden that's something that's a unique signal that we can take to the company and say, look, this may not be on your radar today, but it probably should be. And let us start the discussion around how we can be thoughtful in ultimately setting you up for a successful market entry down the road. So that's one example, I think, of of a little bit of a unique edge or or different approach to sourcing that we have the opportunity to take, again, largely through the the strength of our LP base. That's really cool. I I think that's a really smart way of uh, locating deal flow that you might not necessarily have looked at previously bringing those expertise and and people that know that ecosystem really well and saying look 
go see what's out there and, and come back to us. So uh, painting a bit of a scenario here that uh, someone from Mizuhu has located a startup they're very excited about and could provide considerable value add to the company. I suppose, and I, I'm guessing here, one of your responsibilities is to really do the due diligence of whether it's a good investment opportunity rather than just simply looking at it through the lens of a commercial partnership. So as you mentioned, you focus more on the growth stage. Like what what are you looking for from a B2B company, which are the companies you also look at, but you also consider B2B stuff as well. So that that must be quite interesting to have the opportunity to look at both B2B and B2C. Yeah. No, you're you're a hundred percent right on. And it's actually one of the things that I, I enjoy most about my job is the diversity of the types of companies that we look at. And, and to your point, I mean, evaluating a company with the intention of, of whether or not you're going to make an investment in it is very different in terms of the lens that you use to evaluate it relative to a commercial opportunity. And, you know, because we look across so many different sectors, you know, I'm, and I'm in a position within our firm where I actually you know, most of my time is spent today on diligence. I think that evolves going forward. I'm probably going to focus a little bit more on sourcing as we as we scale up the team. But today, it's mostly diligence. And I think having had the opportunity to look at companies across all different types of sectors, software, fintech, e-commerce, marketplaces, et cetera, I've sort of started to understand that, you know, at the end of the day, like companies are largely just a function of two things. They're, they're a function of acquisition and retention. Like that's really all it is. And it, it, it's different in terms of what looks good and what, what good means across the various sectors, but ultimately it's acquisition and retention. And you can unpack those two. Like acquisition, you do sort of the unbundling. It's a, what's the number and the velocity at which you're adding new customers? Like what are those customers' willingness to pay? And what's sort of the efficiency on the sales and marketing side to acquire those customers or your customer acquisition costs, your CAC or CAC. And you can do the same exercise on the retention side, which says, you know, what are the churn rates or the retention rates? Um, what's the engagement or the frequency of usage? If it's a consumer facing company, are they buying once or never buying again? Or are they buying once every week? And then what's sort of the ongoing cost to serve those customers? I mean, it looks very different for a SaaS company where, you know, really, once you get the initial contract, you're kind of just paying for hosting costs and some costs of maintaining the software and some support costs. But that's very different from, say, like an on-demand service where, you know, particularly when there's a super low switching cost, like with food delivery, and you almost have to repay the CAC, customer acquisition costs, every time that customer transacts with you. So all the different dynamics are really captured by that sort of simple mental model that I use, which is acquisition and retention. And then embedded within that allows you to kind of get an understanding of the unit economics of the business model. And that's something that we care a lot about at the growth stages, kind of series B onwards. And for us, unit economics really boils down to, hey, what kind of contribution profit? And contribution profit, it's not as well known as, say, a gross margin, which is just your revenue less your cost to cost of goods. Because for us, we also layer in to get to contribution profit, additional variable costs. So in, in, in the case of a, say, on-demand ride-sharing app or food delivery app, you know, sales and marketing to us, because it's very correlated to your revenue growth, which is to say if your revenue growth is growing 100%, like your sales and marketing 
if it's also growing 100%, like it may technically be an operating expense as defined by like gap, but that to us is more of a variable expense. So that's where we'll put it in how we evaluate your business. And so solving for that kind of contribution profit level, which is ultimately, you know, getting you into metrics like lifetime value to customer acquisition cost, you're able to do it across all these different sectors. And it's just a matter of once you get enough repetitions of looking at it, you can figure out what good is. And then you can kind of start to see like, well, there's actually a reason like a software as a service company in the public markets trades for 20 times forward sales, which isn't insane and probably too high, but like there's a reason, maybe a better way to say it, it trades at a much better revenue, multiple of revenue than a business that's less capital efficient, that's more consumer oriented, where some of those metrics don't stack up quite as well to what you see in, in the world of SaaS. So, so that's really, I think, kind of the framework that we use. And then ultimately, especially at the growth stages, one thing that we really focus on is, okay, so we have those metrics. We need to see them on kind of a cohort controlled basis, which, which is just a way of saying like, the customers that you acquire over some frequency period of time, if it's a more mature business, probably quarterly frequency is fine. If it's relatively new, you probably want to see, you know, a shorter duration. So call it a monthly cadence on the cohorts. But the belief is like, because those metrics will evolve as you acquire new customers, then we need to have an understanding of how those customer acquisition costs are evolving with those new cohorts how retention curves are evolving with those new cohorts. And I think, you know, ultimately the question that I think a lot about is like, okay, that's fine. That's a lot of numbers. That's quantitatively focused. We, we care about qualitative stuff as well. Product market team, that stuff matters. But there is more focus on the quantitative in the later stages. So then the, the question becomes, well, what gets you really excited about investing in a business then? Like, okay, so here's the metrics. Like what, what is good? And when, when we see businesses where on a cohort controlled basis, the metrics are actually improving, which is to say like the, the CAC is coming down or the retention is going up or, you know, the customer's willingness to spend is higher. That's where we get really excited about new opportunities. And, and the vast majority of businesses, that's not a trend that you see. The vast majority of businesses, as you grow, as you scale, you're acquiring more marginal customers by definition because they hadn't adopted your service before. You know, those dynamics tend to degrade a little bit. So when you see a business where they're even, they're, they're either holding them constant with growth or they're improving, those are the opportunities that we really like to go after um, as aggressively as we can. And that's a sign if you're, you're operating a business, you're really sort of onto something if you start to see that dynamic in, in the business. Yeah, great. That's really interesting. And I guess I, can you talk a little bit to us about drivers? Like what are the levers that you've seen pulled or um, things that happen to actually see those metrics improve? Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, yeah, that's, a, that's a really good question because I think there's probably three or four different things that are kind of categories of drivers. I mean, each time you see this dynamic um, in a business, you know, there are some idiosyncratic things to it that are specific to the business that, that makes us get, you know, as excited as we do, but you can sort of generalize into, into four different um, drivers. I think the, the first and, and probably most well-documented is network effects. You know, when you have a, a product or a service wherein the value of the product or the service increases with the number of users that are on it. Um, you know, inevitably that can lead to improving 
cohort over cohort metrics. And, you know, there's a whole bunch within network effects. There's different types. There's, you know, they have different strengths associated with them. Um, but there's a, there's a number of examples in like marketplaces where like Etsy is a good example here in the U.S. where, you know, the more buyers that you bring to, to Etsy, more demand that attracts more sellers, which leads to more convenience, better pricing, more selection, which brings more more buyers. You know, network effects tend to have sort of a, a positive feedback loop associated with them, or people kind of call a, a flywheel if they want to use some jargon. But at the same time, you know, there are other network effects that are maybe not as powerful. So like, again, on-demand services, it's more of a localized network effect. So you may have, uh, say, food delivery, all the restaurants in one city, like in, in London, if you have all the restaurants, that's great, but it doesn't necessarily help you when you go to Edinburgh or it doesn't, doesn't help across countries or markets. It doesn't extrapolate. And so that, that we view as being a little bit less strong. And you would see that in the cohort metrics, right? Like if it's a really, truly powerful, all-encompassing network effect, then like the cohorts, regardless of how you cut them, if you cut them by geography or channel or whatever, like they'll all kind of improve. And if you have a more localized network effect, if you do that splice by saying, let me just see the cohorts in one particular city. Those look good. What about another city? Not as good. And so that's a way to kind of get a sense for the strength of network effects. I think that the second big driver of this is, is economies of scale. And this is, this is probably also very well understood, but this you see in like e-commerce and logistics where companies have invested very heavily in infrastructure, Amazon being a great example, where look, because now they've achieved a level of convenience and low cost that's just so tough to compete with. More people have ultimately adopted the service and they're now relying on it more, which maybe the CAC is constant, but the retention is going to be a lot higher and the usage and the engagement is a lot higher. Um, so that's the second one. I think the third one, which is maybe a little bit more new, is the fact that companies are now more innovative and able to launch new products in a very, very rapid rate. And there's a number of things that are driving that that are exciting subtrends, like the proliferation of cloud computing, the use of open source, the use of APIs to build software very, very rapidly. You know, companies now have the ability to launch new products that make their offering more valuable. Um, you know, Netflix is probably the perfect example of this. This is not necessarily related to cloud computing, but like they continue to invest in content. So like the value that you get from a Netflix subscription today relative to 10 years ago, you're getting a lot more bang for your buck. And when you're able to do that, if you were to just look at Netflix, like cost of customer acquisition over time, even though they're now on like their 200 millionth customer, that customer acquisition cost has stayed somewhat constant. Even though that 200 millionth customer is, is like by definition, not nearly as excited to join Netflix as like the 20 million. And their churn rates have stayed like remarkably low. And then I think that the fourth trend, in addition to the three that I've touched on, which I'm still kind of thinking through to some extent, because it's exogenous to the business or it's external, is like when you see something like what we just went through in 2020, we had this rapid acceleration up the S-curve for a lot of markets, and the market just kind of matured and was ready to adopt. Like that can also lead to some cohort over cohort trends that, that just kind of inflect and look very, very, very strong. But, you know, to some extent, like if you look at like Zoom as a product, which we're talking on right now, like Zoom today relative to where it was two years ago, yeah, it's like marginally better. They've done some things around security, but like the experience is the same. It's really just the market that has exploded. And you, because of that inflection up that S-curve, 
now those cohorts look really, really strong. And then, you know, there is a little bit of a question around the durability of some of, some of those trends. But for now, I mean, we're still on Zoom. I don't know if anyone that's going to be going back to non-Zoom, even if we go back into the office. That's the other thing that lead to a business having those really, really strong trends. And so those are maybe the four big drivers, three of which are kind of in control of the business to some extent. And then one, which is kind of uh, a market maturation question, which is, you know, to some extent outside of your control. Mm, That's really helpful. I don't think we talk particularly technically about due diligence much on the podcast but I I think it's good to dive into that and I guess I'm interested in like how did you learn about this kind of stuff is it the kind of thing that you picked up before you got your first role in VC or is it something that you've picked up since then? I think to to a large extent um, I have really learned it on the job quite frankly in terms of getting an understanding of the more like operational level of, of the diligence. And what I mean by that is, is I, I don't think, maybe just quickly on my background, right? I, I've done three different things. I, I started my career in management consulting and I, I stumbled into management consulting. I was a life sciences major as an undergrad. So I knew like nothing. I think I, I asked in one of my first client meetings, like, hey, is there a difference between like a gross margin and like an operating margin? And then I, I can still like remember the absolute tear on my like teammate's face of like, this person is not allowed to go to client meetings anymore. Because <laughs> um, so I did that for a number of years. And I think consulting is helpful in some ways for someone just starting out, because it does give you like a logical framework with which to think about business problems. There's a lot of critiques of consulting, which I fully support, quite frankly, like you don't own anything beyond the recommendation, implementation, execution results, like not really in your scope, which is a huge limitation, I think of the model. So, you know, that was good for at least learning how to think about things at a little bit of a higher level in a more framework centric way, which I think does sort of apply to, to maybe what I was just walking through with venture, particularly when you're seeing a whole bunch of information from a number of different sources and trying to find commonalities between them. So I think I do sort of still take that with me today. You know, after consulting, I'd spent a little bit of time at Google in more of an operational role in strategy and operations. And and that was on the go-to-market side, in the core business, gave me a good grounding in understanding like funnel optimization, understanding how to get like marketing and sales to work together in an efficient way, understanding how to think about the channel and how to kind of have channel partners augment what you're doing on the direct side. So that was a good grounding and sort of go to market, which is very, very important for growth stage investing and something that we talked a lot about. At that point, you're usually post product market fit and really starting to scale the go to market engine. So having that grounding, I think was helpful from Google. And the third thing I did was, was investment banking, which is uh yeah that was that was exciting but that that was it was also very painful i'm laughing because it was painful and i don't miss it i was good i got the good experience i learned some stuff i I met some nice people it wasn't necessarily for me long term but that was really working on m&a and and capital markets transactions at morgan stanley as a as part of their technology group including like uber's ipo and then through that experience you do pick things up related to hey what makes this a good business model and what are some of the challenges and and you do get the opportunity to sit in a lot of meetings with investors at a bank and you can hear the questions that like fidelity which is one of the biggest money managers in the world is asking of uber's leadership like dara 
And so where are they focused? Like, I'm smart enough to know that like, if they're asking, then I should also be concerned about that as an investor now at this point in my career. So like, you kind of pick some stuff up from there. But I think that experience was helpful as a grounding coming into venture. But you don't need that. Like, you can pick all of this stuff up as somebody who's working in venture. And, and, and ultimately, like, you know, venture to me, as interesting as the diligence stuff is, and as helpful as it is for helping think through stuff, the, the edge in venture is around access and reputation and getting into really, really hot deals. And so people can be trained to learn about the metrics and what looks good and what looks bad and how to do benchmarking and stuff like that. But like that, that access is really the, the hard part. So, so I think that's one thing that candidly, I am very much trying to get better at and working on. But yeah, that's that's hopefully a bit of background and then gives you some sense for why I kind of maybe think about things in the in the way that I that I do. Mm. And talking about access, how did you end up getting an interview at Will? So for me, I kind of sort of run my course, I think, as an investment banker. I came into banking with like a two-year time horizon. I think we priced the Uber IPO in May of 2019, and I left in June of 2019. Like those two things are very correlated for, for a reason. And I, I, I actually just got an inbound from a recruiter which I know isn't super helpful for people listening who are trying to like extrapolate out to like learnings for how to, how to get into venture. But, but I do think there are a few things I did that maybe helped me kind of be more attractive as a candidate and then ultimately helped me with the interview process. I think number one was just sort of a, a general interest in technology and not only just like as a passive consumer, but trying to like form an opinion and a point of view and, and, you know, that's something that I've continually done since I was at Google. So seven, eight years of, of doing it, I, I think is important for anyone thinking of going into venture. I think that the second thing was, was network. And, you know, inevitably, because of the access point that we touched on earlier, uh, reputation matters and network matters and, and those types of things, while they sound superficial, are actually very valuable in the ecosystem. And so I think I did, I, I would say, I did an okay job of networking. I want to go back to like myself at 18 and like shake myself and just be like, <laughs> focus more on networking. Cause I was, I, I was, I was pretty competitive back then. And I think you realize as you get older, all that competitiveness was just sort of insecurity of like thinking, thinking like a very zero sum view of the world when it's, you shouldn't look at things that way. Like it's I think more of a growth oriented mindset where if people or your friends do well and people that you know do well, inevitably it comes back to you as, as well. And, and I think I do a better job of understanding that now than I did 10 years ago. So I, I did okay on the network. I'm not by any means a, a, an expert networker and, and always working to get better. And then the third thing that I actually didn't do at all, but I highly recommend to anyone who's trying to um, explore opportunities to go into venture is to spend time documenting your learning somewhere on the internet. I, I think... My sense, just from talking to people at other firms who are recruiting, you know, folks don't really care as much what's on the resume. Like they'd much rather read like three or four really interesting Substack or Medium posts that you've authored on some sort of trends that kind of prove out, hey, definitely interest, definitely has some subject matter expertise. I mean, that, that's kind of what you do at Venture in the earlier stages. There are market mapping exercises that every firm does internally, and you have 90% of the resources and ability to do that outside of a venture firm. And nothing is preventing you from kind of taking a pass at it. And the other thing that it does is it's a good litmus test because if you really don't enjoy that, 
then venture is probably not like a great place for you to work, even though you may be interested in it for, you know, some more superficial reasons. You know, that's kind of, that's kind of the job, uh, at least at the, at the more junior levels, obviously. So, so yeah, that, that, those are kind of the things that I try to, to talk about for folks who want to break into venture. But for me, it was a, it was a cold inbound. I was very much ready to leave. Um, I went through the process. Will was very thoughtful. It was very structured. Here's your super day. Here's your cases. Everyone I met, I really, really liked and got along with well. And I've been in enough places to know that you can work at the best companies in the world. But if you don't like the people you're working with, you're going to have a bad time. So that was like the main thing I was really focused on. And it, it all kind of worked out with Will. And I, I think I, I came to realize as a function of going through that interview process, you know, if they're this thoughtful about hiring somebody, they're probably just as thoughtful in how they do other things internally and how they work with LPs and portfolio companies. And I found that to be the case 100%. So that was a, a good hypothesis, I suppose, that's been very much validated pleasantly so. And one thing from my side that I want to touch on, which I find very interesting is that you also invest in other funds. Is that correct? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So we have a small, um, well, I shouldn't say small. It's uh, in terms of assets, it's actually (laughs) a relatively large number of the assets that we have under management are, are dedicated to investing in other venture funds. And for that, it is complementary, I think, to our direct investing efforts for sure. And we're in a number of, of very well-known funds. I, I don't think that um, many of them are, are disclosed publicly, but it does sort of break down between a collection of amazing emerging managers who are doing seed and series A and, and investments that are kind of right at company inception. And then we also have more established brand name companies or firms uh, that we invest in who are maybe playing in a little bit of the same space bases that we are on the direct investing side. But I think because of our positioning, um, you know, with respect to Japan, we can work collaboratively with them as more of a strategic where we can come into rounds and we, we have a function and a purpose and we, we do it very well and we kind of know our, our lane. And, and so we can, we can deliver on that uh, in a way that that's uh, very complementary to what those, those firms do. Amazing. That is so interesting. It sounds like there is really a lot going on at Will. Um, <laughs> it's definitely been been cool to learn about. Um, I was going to ask, Todd, whether you are hiring at the moment, something that we always ask at the end to try and help out some of our listeners. Yeah, we, um, we actually are. We're, we're in the process of, I suppose by the time this comes out, we should have a formal job listing on our website. But but. At the moment, it's not up. So I suppose breaking news to some extent. Um, we are looking to hire a, a, an additional investor for our team on the U.S. side. I think probably someone with you know three to five years of work experience would be ideal. So it's going to be a little bit more on the on the junior side. I, we're we're still kind of thinking through you know what the background of, of that person and that uh, the sort of profile would be. But I I think for now and ultimately we're will probably wind up is that we'll be very flexible. I mean, you don't have to have had investing experience. You don't have to have had two years at a bank or consultancy. You could have been an operator. I think we just want to try to find sort of the best person for the job. And and the best person will be someone who's interested in technology and willing to learn and has a good attitude. And, 
you know, to some extent we'll, we'll be willing to, to work pretty hard and, and is cohesive with our culture. So we're, we're very much open, open to all types of, of experience for the right type of person. And, you know, I think to some extent it will be constrained geographically, which I know is not the most consistent thing to say in 2021, given everyone's in a remote setting. Um, but we probably would like that person to be based in the U.S. and, and preferably the Bay Area. Um, but yeah, if folks are interested, I would love to hear from them. They, they're more than welcome to, to email me, Todd at, at WILAB.com. And yeah, we're excited to launch that, that process kind of imminently. Amazing. Thank you for sharing that with us. And um, I suppose people will be able to find the job listing relatively simply if they sort of Google World Innovation Lab. Uh, but if yeah, to, to the extent they want to just feel free to email me. Uh, we're, we're, we're still a nascent firm. We're fairly small. So, you know, we're happy to, to engage across any of the various channels. I'm happy, happy to do so. Cool. Okay, great. And if any of our listeners um, wanted to like keep in touch or find out what you're up to, where's the best place that they can find you? I am, I have a fledgling and fairly unsuccessful Twitter account, which I would be more than happy to engage with people on or just via email uh, is, is fine as, as well. <laughs> Got it. Okay. Thank you very much. Thank you so much, Todd, for your time. I loved learning a little bit more about the intricacies of looking at growth companies from a due diligence perspective. And then obviously the very unique component of bridging the divide between Japan and the US. So thank you so much. Awesome. No, it was a lot of fun. Thank you. Thank you both for having me very much. And thank you to our lovely listeners, as always, for tuning in. Please, please do give us a like, a follow, and share to someone you think might find this episode interesting. Please feel free to drop us an email on associatedpodcast at gmail.com or give us a follow on Twitter at associated underscore pod. Thanks. Bye.